An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. On Outside In, I'm pleased to welcome Jim McRitchie. If you look online, you'll find Jim described as a gadfly, a corporate governance advocate, and is publisher of corpgov.net. What unifies all that is that without a major institution behind him, he's been fighting for a more equitable form of capitalism for decades. Yes, he's bloodied, but definitely unbowed. And along the way, he's had quite a few victories. In my opinion, the general public and the financial community owe him a debt of gratitude. But because he's not with BlackRock or Vanguard or some other institution, he doesn't get the recognition he deserves. So welcome, Jim. Thanks so much, John. That's a very nice introduction there. What's your origin story? We've often found that interesting people have had interesting lives and you've bounced around geographically, professionally. How'd you become the person you are both professionally and personally? Well, I grew up in a very segregated, sexist, economically isolated bubble, Mount Lebanon, which is outside of Pittsburgh, which at the time was a big corporate headquarters. I had three vice presidents of U.S. Steel on my paper route. And supposedly the town had good schools. That's why my parents moved there. But they were really good if you like rote learning, which I did not like. So I went on to college. I uh, majored in economics. But then again, I was frustrated because uh, the economic models, at least for the first couple of years at where I went, were based on how people should behave if we were all narcissists. So I changed majors to sociology because they seem to actually believe you should study people as they are or as they want to be. I got a master's degree in sociology later on. I kind of dropped out of the PhD program. And before that, I got a master's degree in public administration. I got that in California. I wrote a thesis on worker self-management in the public sector, and I couldn't get anybody to read the thesis because none of the professors knew anything about worker self-management. So I had to wait until a visiting professor came from the UK to read my thesis. So that was a semester or two later. But career-wise, most of my career has been with the state of California. I started out as an analyst, an auditor, a researcher. Then I ended up, after I came back from Boston College, where I got the second sociology degree, I went to work heading the cooperative development program in California. So I helped the Berkeley Food Co-op declare bankruptcy and <laughs> Palo Alto go to bankruptcy and I got on the board of universal co-ops to help them through bankruptcy. So it was not a really great time for, for co-ops. Uh, and then I ended up for most of my career at the department of toxic substances control, 
And there, you know, kind of more frustration. I was trying to regulate all these companies, but I headed legislation and regulations. I was the ethics officer. I signed off on all the permits and anything that could impact the environment that the department did. And yet I found that we were regulated by industry way more than we regulated them. Like Western States Petroleum had more, way more say in the regulations that we wrote than staff did. At that point, I started acquiring lots of shares in different companies. I decided that, okay, well, if they're regulating me, maybe I should be, maybe I should try to regulate them through shareholder proposals. So that's kind of the origin story. I think you left a little bit out in terms of being rebellious. I think at one point in grade school, you refused to read the Bible and claimed you were a Buddhist. And, um, we can't go into every detail, John. No, but I'm, I'm just saying you sort of went from being a rebel without a cause to a rebel with a cause. I guess. Yeah. I, I guess in grade school, I lived in such a segregated community. There were no blacks in our community. You know, Muhammad Ali offered twice the price and couldn't get a house in town because of redlining, you know, it was basically wasps at school. We had to start the morning with the Bible reading. And I just kind of thought, well, what if I was a Buddhist? What if I was a Hindu? You know, and I was very interested in religion because I got to hear, hear the sermons every, every week. And I, I don't know, third, fourth grade, something like that. And, uh, and I know my father was a religious explorer. So I read some of his books, um, Kayla Chabron and others. Anyway, so I told the teacher, well, I'm not going to read the Bible. I'm a Buddhist, you know? So I wasn't really a Buddhist, but I just thought it's crazy to force people to read something that might go against their religion. So, and I re also refused, I mean, I kind of embarrassing, but I refused to salute the flag the following year in class. You know, I, I said, well, I'm Canadian, so, uh, I shouldn't have to salute the flag. So they, they allowed me to stand there with my hand over my heart and just keep quiet. The Canadian one was true, right? You have dual citizenship. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so you decide Western States is regulating you more than them. How do you make the jump that most people don't get to, well, if I own shares in the company, I could talk to them. Well, I'd already run for the CalPERS board a couple of times, probably by that time. So, you know, I was, uh, very interested in what they did. I knew the big pile of money had a voice and I had followed their activities with, uh, Jess Unruh and others. Uh, so I just thought, okay, well, this is one way I looked up, you know, what does it require to file a shareholder proposal? Well, it requires $2,000 worth of stock. Well, I can afford that. I can buy $2,000 worth of stock in a few companies. So. That was basically the route. Jess Unruh at the time being the California State Treasurer and a member of the CalPERS and CalSTRS board and one of the original founders of the Council of Institutional Investors. So, but you're not with them, right? I mean, in fact, you're known as a corporate gadfly. Now, the definition of gadfly, according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, is like, quote, a person who stimulates or annoys other people 
especially by persistent criticism, end quote. Most people wouldn't enjoy being known as a gadfly, but you've reclaimed that term sort of as a positive sober quit. So why are you proud to be a corporate gadfly? Well, I also have a dictionary, John. So you look up gadfly in the dictionary and the first gadfly was Socrates. So, you know, if someone's going to call me a gadfly and compare me to Socrates, that's not a totally bad thing. I think that, you know, over the years, uh, even though I'm called a gadfly, people have come to respect me. You know, I remember speaking with the corporate secretary society, the governance society today, I think it's called. And uh, they asked, well, why do you file resolutions instead of talking to us to begin with? And, you know, it's like, well, I file resolutions because I'm just an individual and you're not going to pay any attention to me if I just write you a letter. And they, <laughs> they told me, everybody in this room knows who you are, Jim. Raise your hand if you don't know who Jim McRitchie is. So I was kind of surprised with that, although happily surprised. Although you and your fellow gadflies don't always get treated with respect, how do the companies which are subject to your resolutions treat you? Has it changed over the years? It, was it initially dismissive or do they underestimate you or? Yeah, I think it was very dismissive at first. I'm not sure when it happened. I, you know, 2014, I think uh, a bunch of companies sued John Chavedin and I, instead of going to the SEC and asking for a no action letter. Uh, the other route that you can take, which means basically that the SEC will take no action if the company leaves your proposal off the proxy. Uh, so instead of doing that, another route is to go to court, go to directly to court. And, and then of course the shareholder has to normally pay court fees and pay for an attorney and all that. We represented ourselves in court and we lost, uh, the first two cases, as I recall in Texas. And, uh, I'll never forget. I tried to get the tran. Well, I got the transcript for, I think, I don't know if it was the, we went to federal appeals court once. So right below the Supreme court, I don't know if it was federal appeals court or the lower court in Texas, but I cited a Supreme court case and the judge told me, well, that doesn't apply in Texas. <laughs> so I, I got the transcript and. Interestingly, that, uh, that was not in the transcript. Then we won, we came up with a tactic basically, uh, so that these companies wouldn't have standing to sue us. Uh, so we basically got the cases dismissed in New York and Boston and Denver. And so I don't think any company's gonna sue us again. The attorneys for some of these companies actually threatened to take my home, you know, they actually, when you talk to them on the phone, you know, this is going to cost you a lot of money because we could get court fees and court costs and, you know, it could be quite expensive. And, uh, you know, I just said, well, Hey, if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. And I just kept on going, uh, but no court awarded companies court fees, but on when we won. All three of those cases awarded court costs to us. But since we represent ourselves, I think maybe the court cost for us was $50. So I didn't bother. I think John may have actually collected, but I didn't. <laughs> You've had quite a few successes. I think you were also uh, 
fairly instrumental in actually convincing CalPERS to have an entire um, shareholder emphasis. But let's go back to the Gadfly theme for a minute. Um, it's interesting that there was a recent article by two law professors, one from Harvard, one from Wisconsin, and it turned the academic focus on Gadfly as they use the term, and you were prominently featured. What they found was actually a little surprising that the U.S. system of corporate governance relies on you and four other individuals. Certainly more than previously known. Here's a direct quote from the paper. Quote, amazingly, a small group of individual shareholders wields unprecedented power to set corporate agendas and stands at the epicenter of our contemporary corporate governance ecosystem. In fact, the power of these individuals known as, quote, corporate gadflies continues to rise, end quote. The study covered 10 years, ending 2018, and it said that when looking at shareholder proposals, and those are the formal requests that an investor can make to a company to get voted on at the company's annual meeting, more than half of the proposals in the past came from just five individuals, including yourselves. And most proposals don't come anywhere close to passing, but yours apparently do because in 2018, the last year of the period of this study, you single-handedly accounted for majority of the past shareholder resolutions. Now, that's both an amazing and a frightening statistic. I mean, on the one hand, you can look at that as validation of the importance of your work, not that you're asking for, but it also raises a question. What does it mean that part of the system of corporate governance in America relies on five retail investors? It seems like a pretty fragile system to me. Where's everyone else? Well, that is crazy. So five of us file all these proposals, or it's actually two of us, basically. Uh, we file these proposals, but the big four and others will vote for the proposal. They won't file a proposal because, and basically the, one of the problems is that it costs money or time or sometimes both to file proposals. And if you're basically an indexed fund, a universal owner, and you're competing against other index funds who are universal owners, then any dime that you spend uh, on negotiating and filing proposal is a dime that your competitors don't spend. So, you know, the, the big funds are basically competing right now on uh, low costs. That's what they're competing on. And hopefully in the future, they'll be competing on how they vote and we got NPX filing changed. And another thing that those professors did raise in that paper is, you know, they said, well, it's, it's crazy that we're dependent on these amateurs to file these proposals. And also they raised the idea that, well, we're in our seventies and we're not going to last forever. And they don't see a lot of people coming up behind us. And one of the things I did was I tried offering an online class on how to file a shareholder proposal. There wasn't a whole lot of people signing up for that class, but, and I told the professors this, there are others out there, uh, particularly as you sow and ICCR, the Interfaith Center for Corporate Response. Now, ICCR basically focuses mostly on smaller institutional investors, although they have legal in general with over a trillion dollars and some other funds, CalSTRS is a member I know, but 
as you sow basically attracts retail shareholders. And so, uh, as you sow can be kind of a go-to place for why well, I want to be involved, but I don't want to have to learn all the rules <laughs> and I'm not even sure that I can actually figure out all the nuances of proposals. Can you help me? And as you so will help them. Why do you do what you do? I mean, normally I would say, look, it's expensive. It's time consuming. As you say, you do it everything yourself. So let's just say it's doubly time consuming. It has some costs. You don't make yourself beloved by corporate America. Um, <laughs> what motivates you? The books that basically led me down this path. <laughs> One of them was Carol Pateman's Participation in Democracy, I think it was called. Anyway, it was a great book on political efficacy and the fact that if you're involved at work in making decisions, then you'd also be involved in politics. So you, you had agency and I had, I worked with so many people who had no agency at work that they, you know, they would say, well, the state is wasting billions of dollars here and there, but they would not do anything about it. They didn't think they had any power to do anything about it. And then another book that influenced me tremendously was Peter Berger's, uh, social, social construction of reality. And, uh, so how social forces create the institutions that we inhabit and how we can recreate them. That it was actually the three B's when I went, went to Boston college, Peter was teaching there. Well, I didn't really know how much of a conservative he was. Bernstein who wrote a book called workplace democracy was teaching there. And Seb Bruin, who wrote a book on the social economy. Anyway, these books influenced me to believe that workers should be empowered to have a say over their work. And, and I think that of the big problems that the world faces right now, you know, of course you've got climate change. I mean, that's just total destruction. Another big, huge one is wealth inequality. The more wealth inequality there is in a country, the more there is political stalemate and inability to get anything done. And of course we're at the top of the list practically for wealth inequality in the United States with 90% of the stock being owned by 10% of the population. This year, my proposals are focused on worker ownership. I think it was Burkhart. In a 21st century investing, they basically pointed out that for every 1% increase to the top 20% of the population, there's a decrease in the GDP for every 1% increase of income to the bottom 20% of the population, there's an increase in GDP and a substantially more impact than the, the opposite. But then one of the facts in your latest book was basically that 75 to 90% of returns come from, you know, it's an exaggeration to say the direction of the GDP, but you know, asset allocation and where the market is going. So it's not stock picking. So to me, that leads me to conclude that one of the most effective ways to change the world is to make it so that 
more people in the bottom 20% of the economy are shareholders and have efficacy in the companies that they work with and work for than piling more money onto the CEO. You know, since 2003, shareholders have been voting on these stock plans. And most of that stock plan, it goes to the, the named executive officers and the board of directors. And I want us to track, well, where does that money go? Does any of it dribble down to people who work at the company? Why aren't they getting some stock? So that's, uh, that's my future direction there. You mentioned that we've been voting on stock option plans <laughs> and more recently on say on paid votes. Let me do this as the, uh, high school debate coach would say resolved, um, the corporate governance movement has failed abysmally at executive compensation that, um, since it became an issue, the dispersion between CEOs and, and the work floor has only increased. CEOs get paid percentage-wise uh, multiples more in the United States than any other nation. And there is no known academic relationship between CEO excellence and um, how much they get paid. It's largely a function of the size of the company. So why is this going to be different? Don't we just sort of create fig leaves that make it look like we're doing something and nothing ever happens. It's horrible, horrible. I mean, I've talked to CalPERS about it. I'm, I'm thinking of running for the board. And one of the reasons is I want to address these kinds of issues. So I talked to them actually the other day, the people that do the voting, I asked them, so they're, they're now voting against a lot of CEO pay. So I think they voted against more than half the pay packages. So that's great. But I asked them, what are you doing to stop the ratcheting up of CEO pay? Because, uh, I forget what the book was, but there was a book, a really good book on explaining how CEO pay is put together. And basically it's doing salary surveys and then Every board thinks, well, our CEO is at the 75th percentile level, or at least they're certainly above average. So we're going to pay our CEO above average. So if you do a salary survey every year, and then you put your CEO at the 75th percentile, it, all companies do that. I mean, it, you know, that's a slight exaggeration. And so then of course, if you want to stay above that average, your pay goes up. Let me switch slightly to the other side of your activities. Um, you publish a wonderful website, corpgov.net, that sort of serves as a, a clearinghouse for a lot of corporate governance information. And it's been around forever. And when I say forever, starting in 1995 to, to bring this home, the top movie in 1995 was Toy Story, the original. In the news, we were watching a low-speed car chase that eventually evolved to O.J. Simpson being found innocent. In other words, it was a long time ago. And you decided to start CorpGov.net on this newfangled thing called the internet. And I do mean newfangled. Globally, there were only 16 million people on the internet. That was 0.4%, four-tenths of a percent of the world's population. And yet, 
you created this thing that's been going strong now for 27 years. So what was the spark that made you do that? What were you thinking? What were you trying to accomplish? And do you think it's worked? I wasn't the visionary that someone might think I was. I used to jog at lunch with Rich Copas, who was the chief counsel at CalPERS. And CalPERS didn't have a corporate governance office at that point. So I would jog around the park and we'd chat about corporate governance. And so I decided, well, I'll create a website that shows that I know something about this issue and uh, try to convince him to start a corporate governance unit. I don't know if I convinced him, but anyway, they did decide. I was head of, as I said, head of leg legislation and regulations for toxics, which was in the same building as CalPERS. Instead of hiring me, they hired their own head of legislation, who was Glenn Miles, and I, I know Glenn Miles. He works now in the Senate committee, where all the CalPERS legislation goes through that oversees CalPERS. Anyway, Glenn was a great guy. He's a good pick. I can't fault them for that. And it's worked out great for me because even though I didn't get to sit at the big table with CalPERS, the state department sent me to Japan and Korea, and I got invited by the Asian development bank. And, you know, anyway, I got speaking engagements since I was the only game in town. Uh, and you know, when people would, would invite me to speak, they, 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 they didn't get exactly what they thought they were going to get. Uh, you know, when I went to Korea, I met with a whole bunch of people who were trying to democratize the country, plus democratize the company. The state department thought I was there to open up markets for American business, which I, you know, happy to do that as well. But, uh, my mission was a little different than theirs. What's exciting to you right now? What are you passionate about? Well, I'm very passionate about this idea of going back to my roots where I studied worker self-management in the public sector. That's what I wrote my first thesis on in a master's of public administration. And, uh, and then when I, uh, dropped out of uh, Boston college, the PhD program to go to raft meatpacking, where, you know, the workers bought out the plant to try to help them figure out, okay, how do we run this place as a worker owned plant? So, you know, my, and my, some of my friends from back then are still in this field of employee stock ownership plans and conversion of companies to employee ownership and getting employees involved at letter, like at RAF, the workers improve the productivity there tremendously. Yeah. And there's lots and lots of evidence that shows that getting workers involved in making decisions, actually even eliminating maybe first line supervision, you know, if the people are properly trained and motivated companies become much more productive. So I'm going back to those roots. I have a weekly group that meets, we discuss issues for about an hour and a half on zoom. And I'm going to have Corey Rosen and other folks that are involved in employee ownership and have been so for 30 years. And we're going to talk about, well, how can this be applied at major companies? So I'm very excited about that and very excited about, I filed about 12 proposals this year asking as a first step to tell us where the, these incentive shares have gone at your company, you know, cause we, we saw the CEO pay ratio. What's the CEO incentive 
the stock ratio going to be? It's going to be even worse than the, than the pay ratio. And I don't believe for a minute that CEOs are worth a thousand times more, you know, they're paid, they shouldn't be paid a thousand times more than, uh, you know, when I was a kid growing up in that really prejudiced corporate bubble, CEOs earned 30 times what the average worker owned. And I looked at those people and said, these people are disconnected with reality. Like I had friends who were dealing heroin in high school and the parents thought, oh, they're getting the money because they work at a clothing store and they earn a dollar an hour. One of my friends gave a, his girlfriend a diamond choker and his father just thought, well, he earned the money at the clothing store, but you know, he didn't realize, and he was head of the world's largest accounting firm. So it's like, I just looked at that and said, these people, they don't even know what reality is. And yet that was 30 times. And what is it now? 300 times, 350 times. It's crazy. Is there a company that's doing a good job at involving workers? There are companies like Gore and you know, a lot of them are private companies. I think there's Patagonia, there's unusual, I would say more niche companies. And what we've got to do is get the big companies involved. Let's finish with a couple of quick questions and answers. How do you relax? I relax with a morning jog, listening to outside in. <laughs> And then I do Tai Chi. No, I, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to books and other things. I jog for, I don't know, four or five miles in the morning. I'm not fast. So I can listen to a lot of things. And then I do Tai Chi. And that's pretty much my relaxation time. What music do you listen to? I'm still focused on work most of the time. So the music that I like to listen to is uh, like Leo Kotke or uh, Jeff Peterson, somebody that plays instrumental that's really nice, but it's kind of background music. doesn't interfere with my working ability. If you could be on vacation right now, where would it be? Well, it'd either be with friends. And so that might be Vancouver, New York, Boston. Most of my friends are into this same sort of corporate governance stuff. My wife is Chinese American. So another thing that I do occasionally is I go to China or I go to Hawaii to tend graves. So, it, you know, it might be time to paint the fence around the cemetery. So that, that's another uh, vacation type activity for me. What books are you reading right now? I'm reading Burkhart's 21st Century Investing <laughs> because he's going to be on my weekly Zoom group in a couple of weeks. So I figured I, I've read it uh, once or twice, but I'm... Um, rereading it now so that I can press him with all this pointed. That's uh, Bill Burkhart and Steve Leidenberg's book. Yeah. 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 I've known Steve for a lot longer than Bill. Last question. If you could magically whisper into the ear of everyone in the world, what's the one thing you would say to them? This could sound a little bit like the hijacked plane over Pennsylvania, but instead of, uh, let's roll to save a lot of people. I think about together, we can do this. That's what I'd whisper, you know, with together, we can do this. People don't have to die to save the planet or to save a salubrious environment so that we can all 
uh, exist in the future along with our grandchildren. So that'll be it. Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with John Kunlick and our special guest, Jim McRitchie. Jim, thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Outside In is hosted by John Lukumnik and produced by Elizabeth Thompson for Spark Network. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts, or we'd love it if you leave us a review, as well as on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and wherever else you get your favorite shows. To get more information about our show and to stay in the know about future episodes, sign up for our newsletter on sparknetwork.com.